Welcome, welcome to Service Headline News. I am Marty Smith. And I'm Eric Farrakh. And we're here to bring you the latest headlines and updates pertinent to all servicemen and women. So sit back, get informed, and maybe have a laugh as the Swearing In Podcast presents Service Headline News. Eric, I'm, I, I missed you desperately. We missed last week, but we're back on it today. Uh, how are you doing? I'm doing well, Marty. It's good to be back. I had all these great, grand stories to tell and no platform, so I'm glad you're back. <laughs> well, I want you to unload all those great stories right here, right now. <laughs> Sounds good, man. Well, let's start uh, with our day in military history. So in, on September 1st in 1864... General William T. Sherman launches the attack that finally secures Atlanta, Georgia for the Union and seals the fate of Confederate General John Bell Hood's army, which is forced to evacuate the area. So here's what happened. The Battle of Jonesboro was a culmination of a four-month campaign by Sherman to capture Atlanta. He had spent the summer driving his army down the 100-mile corridor from Chattanooga, Tennessee, against a Confederate force led by General Joseph Johnston. General Hood, who replaced Johnston in July on the outskirts of Atlanta, proceeded to attack Sherman in an attempt to drive him northward. However, these attacks failed, and by August 1st, the armies had settled into a siege. In late August, Sherman swung his army south of Atlanta to cut the main rail line supplying the rebel army. Confederate General William Hardy's corps moved to block Sherman at Jonesboro and attacked the Union troops on August 31st. But the rebels were thrown back with staggering losses. The entrenched Yankees lost just 178 men while the Confederates lost nearly 2,000. Wow. I know. (laughs) On September 1st, Sherman attacked Hardy. Though the Confederates held, Sherman successfully cut the rail line and effectively trapped the rebels. Hardy had to abandon his position, and Hood had no choice but to withdraw from Atlanta. The fall of Atlanta was instrumental in securing the re-election of Abraham Lincoln in the fall. And I think that was basically the beginning of the end. Then it was kind of just mop-up work after that for the Civil War once, once Sherman drove to the sea. You know, his right. infamous march to the sea. Well, there was nothing left. He fired uh, them uh, right. all. Right. Yeah. And, it, and it's crazy to think at Gettysburg, they were in Pennsylvania. They were pushing up on New York. And after Gettysburg, they just fell back and back and back. And, but Grant, you know, Grant had a lot to do with that, too, when they finally put Grant in and he was confident. Yeah. I mean, my God, the Union went through so many incompetent generals. It's crazy. <laughs> Looking back at those types of conflicts, it's amazing. I know when you and I were in the service and we talked about, you know, getting a ride in the back of a deuce and a half and being transported versus, you know, on the march or on a horseback or in a wagon or maybe the luxury of a train. But man, what a ride. And and hopefully they had shoes, right? Right. Right. I mean, I mean, everybody remembers. Uh, well, you remember Glory. You remember the movie Glory. They didn't even have shoes. Yes, sir. I was like, man, these guys were we're paying them like pennies a day to fight for the country, and they can't even get shoes. Amazing. It's still yep. amazing. 
But mm-hmm. that happened on uh, that was Sherman's attack on September first, eighteen sixty four. Hmm. Crazy. So, <laughs> Again, the thought of you know five thousand men, whatever the number was, marching south. Yeah, and there wasn't like hard roads. We're we're breaking bush. I'm sure in certain places, maybe a, a dirt road. Right. Huh. Those guys were intense. Okay, so let's let's lead us off, Eric, with the first news story of the day. All right. Well, this one's very interesting. Um, sticking with our theme of current events, this has to do um, with the Ukraine conflict with Russia. And the fact that they have no close air support um, and they are in desperate need of this close air support, some type of aircraft. Well, they have an entrepreneurial Ukrainian infantryman, and he's managed to crowdfund the development of a secret A-10 Warthog simulation training center. Oh, jeez. Yeah, so this is all in the hopes that they would be able to receive the Warthog, the A-10, from the U.S. government or maybe another outside country that had them. Um, But the iconic attack plane has been a sought-after aircraft of the Ukrainian forces since the start of the country's conflict with Russia and their keenness to receive Western combat jets of any kind is only further exemplified by the creation of this new facility. Wow. This guy, he is a low-level infantry officer named Alexander Gorgon. He's in the Ukrainian military, but he has high-level connections, and he is the brains behind the grassroots A-10 training center project. So no aircraft yet, but a training center for their pilots to learn how to use this, this weapon. Wow, jeez. The light bulb went off for Gorgon in March, Time Magazine wrote, when he was trapped in a trench in Kiev while being subjected to a barrage of Russian artillery shells. <laughs> huh. That's a good time to be thinking about it. Well, yeah, you want to be any place but there. Uh, why not in the air? Yeah, I guess so. He recalled that all he could think about was how relive, reliving Relieving it would be to know that an A-10 was on its way to suppress the attack that now had him trapped underground in the home of his country's capital. Wow. Gorgon then decided to dedicate the next six months to working with fellow Ukrainians as well as an American A-10 pilot in whatever capacity the war would allow to both urge the United States to donate A-10s and establish the training equipment necessary to prepare Ukrainian pilots for their potential delivery. I, I think, you know, we go back to the escalation of the war and everybody in the United States is concerned that what we provide the Ukrainian people can be misconstrued by the Russians as, you know, you're starting World War III with us. You're providing weapons to, you know, our enemy. And so the likelihood of them getting this A-10 is very, very small. To be honest. Yeah. Anyway, training at the facility began in early May, and Ukrainian pilots have been using it ever since. After green, after agreeing to be blindfolded during the trip to and from the location, Time Magazine was granted access to the A-10 Simulation Center 
and noted that it featured a sophisticated flight simulator that had been designed using open source YouTube videos of U.S. military trainers in action and built with off-the-shelf components and guidance by retired U.S. military officials. That's pretty darn cool. That's that's right. You know, I hope it comes to fruition, which it seems like it's not. Sounds like it's a uh, chasing a windmill. But since the start of the conflict, some Ukrainian pilots have been flying less capable SU-25 Frogfoots for their daily operations, which are very roughly the Soviet-era counterpart to the A-10. Huh. It's, it's an old airplane, though. It yeah. yeah. In terms of what the A-10 would bring to the table, the American-made Warthog was designed with a high level of survivability. It's intended to withstand a significant amount of battle damage and, if needed, undergo speedy repairs to get back up in the air under a strict timeline. Its armament is also diverse and features AGM-65 Maverick missiles, AIM-9 Sidewinder missiles, and a wide array of rockets and bombs, and, of course, the iconic 30-millimeter GAU Avenger cannon. That thing can knock some things down off the ground. I, uh, I, I remember going to capabilities exercise at a Fort Sill, and they flew the A-10s in, and they were way far away, but they just gave up, you know, like a three or four second burst of that, um, of that main gun. And just the sound of that alone is just raises the, you know, <laughs> yeah. raises your hair on your head. It's like, oh my God, that thing is amazing. But um, I think it was also, wasn't the A-10 also very instrumental in all the highway of death stuff in the uh, Gulf War? Absolutely. Yeah, that was they were sitting ducks for the A-10, man. Oh my God, it's a depleted uranium round. I think yeah. isn't it? it's crazy. The potential it's- for some A-10s to one day end up in Ukraine was further echoed by Secretary of the U.S. Air Force Frank Kendall in July, when he indicated to reporters that the A-10 was on the table for Ukraine, and that older U.S. systems are being considered to fulfill the country's future air combat needs. Regardless, oh. the relatively humble off-the-shelf simulators that Ukrainian pilots are now training on will provide valuable experience with the basic interfaces and control concepts used on Western combat aircraft if they ever get them. So, That's very cool. It says here, the A-10 was delivered in October 1975. So I know they've tried to retire it once or twice, and yep. they're like, no way, we need the... We need something close air, and it's just that's crazy. I guess the only really disadvantage is, is the speed. I mean, it certainly doesn't, you know, maintain no, it's, it's slow. It's slow as crap, but it needs to be because it's, you know, it's flying 200 feet above the ground or whatever it is. Yeah. Well, um, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm go figure pro Ukrainian. <laughs> I'm sure. I would love to see those folks. Get some close air capability and uh, really give the Russians a going for it, man. You know, and I don't, I, you know, you don't hear much. Obviously, you don't hear much about the war right now, anyway. Um, but I, you don't hear much about the Russian air force. No, you know, it, it, it sounds like it's all ground, which is odd, which is interesting. Because if the Russians employed their air force, I mean, it seems like it would be over pretty quick, but. Well, my understanding too is we've we've certainly, you know, 
sent forward a number of ground air missile stinger types. Yeah, that's true. That's, so, that's true. And they've lost a lot of aircraft, is my understanding. I don't know the exact number, but Ukraine's done a heck of a job uh, knocking out some of their aircraft to include most of their big uh, combat helicopters, their attack helicopters. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, Those are, that's, that's a Rambo 3 helicopter. <laughs> right. I can't <laughs> imagine how well Ukraine would do if they had a competent, capable, close air support aircraft, man. Yeah, yeah. Amazing. All right. So the Navy... According to this is a story out of the Daily Press by Ian Monroe, um, the Navy's newest aircraft carrier, the Enterprise, reaches a milestone. That's the headline. So the Enterprise, you know, like the Enterprise, wasn't that the old World War II carrier? True. Um, actually, there were nine ships called the Enterprise that we've had in the Navy, and I'll cover that in a second. But this last Saturday, the 27th of August, the keel was laid in Newport News Shipyard for the U.S. Navy's newest Gerald R. Ford class aircraft carrier, the USS Enterprise. The more than 1,100-foot-long, 100,000-ton carrier will be the ninth Navy ship to bear the name Enterprise since 1775. So I'm sure you're wondering, what are the other eight Enterprise, car- Enterprise ships? I right? am. I am, yes. Well, there was a bunch uh, in like the 1700s, 1700s. Actually, there were five of them. Um, You know, there was a 70-ton sloop, a 25-ton schooner, a 135-ton schooner. None of that. I I know no Navy terms. We need a Navy guy. (laughs) Um, So there was a bunch of Enterprise uh, sailing ships, you know, with the sail uh, back in 1874. Then um, there was a small boat named Enterprise that was used from 1917 to 1919, and that was a 66-foot motor patrol boat. And it wasn't until May 1938 where the Yorktown-class aircraft carrier USS Enterprise was put into service. Um, That Enterprise served with unparalleled distinction in World War II. It was the most awarded and decorated ship of that war. In fact, I think it was three, there were three ships commissioned before the war started that finished the war, and the Enterprise was one, was one of those. They What she damaged pretty bad, though? And they, the, ja- the Japanese said they sank it three times. Yeah. So it's also, it's also... It's also known as the Great Ghost because uh-huh. the Japanese said that they sank it three times and they, they <laughs> kept repairing it and putting it back in. Uh, and it survived the war and it was decommissioned in 1947. Yeah, um, I remember a story about them when, when it was damaged, they brought it back into dry dock and Nimitz said, I want it out of here in like seven days, something that would have taken like months. He was able to get it turned in seven days and put it back out to sea and make it become operational. Right. And I think that was before, I want to say that was before Midway because the enterprise helped to swing that battle at Midway, I think, but you're right. They got that thing out in like 
unbelievable time, and they got it back seaworthy and back out sailing and fighting. Pretty amazing. Um, then uh, the USS Enterprise CVN 65 was commissioned in 1961, and it was the world's first nuclear-powered aircraft carrier. Hmm. And as, uh, well, back in 2012, it was the Navy's longest-serving uh, combat vessel. So it was decommissioned, or it was it was decommissioned in 2017, but it was inactive in, tw- in 2012. So we went from 1961 to 2012 as the uh, world's first nuclear-powered aircraft carrier. I then what I think about walking on an, a care an aircraft carrier that's powered by nuclear capabilities. <laughs> I, it's it's crazy to think that we have nuclear submarines, we have nuclear carriers, uh, and then the environmental groups are like, "Nope, we don't want nuclear power plants; they're too dangerous." It's like, look at all these sailors; they're they're sleeping right next to the reactor. What are you talking about? They're all over the world. <laughs> Of course, they're fly- they're filing multiple VA claims probably <laughs> yeah. because of that, but maybe that's why. I don't know. Um, so uh, this enterprise is going to be a Gerald R. Ford class aircraft carrier. The keel was just laid, and its scheduled completion is 2028. 20, <clears throat> uh, this new enterprise versus the last nuclear-powered enterprise this one will use just two nuclear reactors versus the last Enterprise had eight. Eight. That blows my mind. They had eight right. nuclear reactors on that sucker. Um, you light your cigar on the boat. <laughs> just on the bulkhead right there. Uh, as well, the catapult that launches the planes on the new carrier is powered electromagnetically, and the Enterprise will not have any steam generation. So... It's fascinating uh, uh, how we're doing boat building nowadays. So, right. Um, again, it's scheduled to be completed by 2028, and we will have another USS Enterprise out on the water. So, good on you, Navy. Well, thanks. Transitioning real quick, you know, we've always talked about weapons and weapon platforms. Um, I found this article in. You know, being I did 22 years in the Air Force, I thought I knew a lot about the capabilities of what our armed services did, but I found one today that I had never heard of. And um, well, here, let me enlighten you. This comes from the the War Zone, and it's written by Joseph Travethick, and it says the U.S. Army says it has completed fielding 315 new Swiss design nine by 19 millimeter. APAC submachine guns. The service first announced that it was buying these guns, also referred to as a subcompact weapons or SCWs, in 2019 as a new weapon to arm its protective security detail. I had no idea that the Army had a specialized um, personnel security, protective security detail. I just didn't fathom that. So I find this very interesting. The contract was awarded, the SCW contract, to the Swiss gunmaker B&T on March 2019. The deal is valued at the time. The deal was valued at the time at more than $2.5 million. The first systems were fielded to the personnel security branch, PSB, the U.S. Army's Protective Services Battalion, 
assigned to the 701st Military Police Group. The purpose of this division, it acts as part of the service's Criminal Investigation Command, CID, and is tasked to provide worldwide executive-level protection to the Secretary of Defense, the Secretary of the Army, the Chief of Staff of the Army, and their foreign counterparts on official visits to the U.S. and other high-risk personnel as directed and deemed necessary. Again, this has got to be, you know, like we were talking about earlier, Secret Service kind of detail, but it's active duty Army uh, falling under military police. Yeah, that's pretty fascinating. I mean, uh, what's the investigative office of the Air Force? OSI? Correct. Uh, I know CID is the investigative branch of the MPs in the yeah. Army. Yeah. And so now this is a further slice of those CID guys to sort of act as special agents, I guess, right? Protective division. Right. Almost like a PSO, a personnel security officer. Yeah. Specific details. And that makes me wonder if any of the other services – Air Force, Navy, Marines have some sort of comparable division. Well, you were you were telling me um, the the part of the security police at the time, right? Correct. What was the base uh, the base response? What was the oh, part that you were part of? Emergency service team. Emergency service team. I never knew you had that. Yeah. So, well, and it's it's really a basic SWAT school where we, you know, work with local uh, police outside the installation because most of them have authority on the base. So we would be like a supplemental force to them. And then where we had full jurisdiction on the installation, we became the guys that would, you know, provide any type of emergency response to a hostage situation, you know, shooter, active shooter event, that kind of thing. So, yeah, I mean, I, I, EST is comparable, but it certainly isn't funded with new sub-pack machine guns. Wow. So, <laughs> so what are these guns? Are they are they uh, automatic pistols? Sort of. So the APC-9K is a subcompact version of the already small APC-9 Pro with a 4.3-inch barrel instead of the 6.8-inch inch one on the full-size guns. So it's it's a smaller, more concealable weapon. Okay. This gives the K model an overall length of just under 20.9 inches, huh. which can be further reduced to 12.7 inches by retracting its sliding stock. Wow. Yeah, this thing, I mean, you could literally hide it under your coat. The APC-9 Pro, which features a different style of stock, and a slightly longer fore-end because of its longer barrel is 23.8 inches long, which shrinks down to 14.8 inches when the stock is folded to the side. So the well, new now, model is smaller and can collapse smaller. What's its rate of fire? Is it just a pistol? Um, it does, Is it semi-auto pistol? I believe it's full auto. Full auto? The Army provided the APC-9K to U.S. Army Criminal Investigation Division's Command Protective Services Battalion agents in order that they may provide continuous protective close-end security 
for senior high-risk personnel while maintaining stringent discretion in attire and profile. The statement from the PM soldier Lethe spokesperson explained that the APC-9K is a concealable 9mm subcompact weapon capable of firing in semi and full automatic rates of fire <laughs> and provides greater lethality than pistols and is more concealable than rifles. Well, it does make, you know, you made that uh, statement about attire. So these are active duty army guys providing personal security detail. Yeah. And, but I always picture these guys in blazers, right? <laughs> with the gun underneath. But these yeah. guys are active duty guys. So are they not wearing uniforms? Nope. Are they, are they wearing are they, blazers? I'm suit and ties. Oh. Yeah. The uh, concerns were about over penetration, especially <laughs> in a protective security context where threats could be, which where threats could emerge at very close ranges in environments full of innocent bystanders, which could well have driven the decision to stick with a nine millimeter submachine gun. Doing so would allow members of the Army's PSB to continue using existing stocks of ammunition and take advantage of the new cartridges, especially the M1153 hollow point rounds. Oh my God, these guys. The service says is they're acquiring it together with the M17 and M18 pistols at the eight at the same time. Nine millimeter weapon like the APC 9K would offer no ability to penetrate through any body armor an attack might be wearing. Now that's interesting. Yeah, that is interesting. It's not going to penetrate body armor. Well, you kind of need that. I would think so. (laughs) I think it's, I think what they're looking for is more height, more state of uh, a state of fire, more rounds. Sure. Right. And the ability to conceal the weapon wherever they're at. What the, we'll have to do a follow up on the on this group to see what they actually do because uh, that's really fascinating that we have active duty army guys doing this. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Uh, and they fall under, like I said, that seven hundred first military police group. I yeah, where they're where they're stationed at. Yeah, no kidding. There's got to be only a handful of those guys. So right. Yeah, interesting. Okay, let me ask you a question, Eric. Well, let me tell you a story. I told this story before when I was at jump school and we got up so damn early and all I had was an electric razor. So I shaved at like four in the morning, but by August in Fort Benning, Georgia, by nine o'clock, I already had a beard coming back. And I had, when I was at jump school, I had one of the drill instructors catch me and said, go get your razor because I'm going to shave you. And I was like, oh my God, he's going to sit here and shave me? Holy shit! That was a big uh, throughout the, the throughout our time. <laughs> I I, t- I tell you the 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 most worried I was about that is that he was going to kick my ass because I only had a little battery operated electric shaver <laughs> and he would just hit the roof. But, you don't have a big razor. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't have I didn't have the little bick. No, I didn't. Oh my uh, God. Well, you come from way back then in 1987. To this story I got by Jonathan Snyder out of Stars and Stripes, there has been a leaked Space Force memo on 
the possibility of letting Space Force members, the Guardians, they're called Guardians, grow beards. <laughs> so we go all the way from being yelled at for not shaving close enough to now the Space Force is going to let these guys grow beards. Anyway, the U.S. Space Force is taking one small step toward permitting its Guardians to grow their own beards. A memo leaked to the popular Air Force uh, Airman NCO, NCO Facebook page says a pilot program would examine the impacts of facial hair on male service members in uniform. The program could begin as early as September 1st, according to the memo signed by Space Force Brigadier General Devin Pepper. General Pepper has a beard? Uh, I don't know. Maybe he wants one. <laughs> uh, individuals participating in the program would still be required to keep, quote, Facial hair neat in appearance, shaped appropriately, not faddish, and no longer than a quarter inch, according to the memo. Currently, both airmen and guardians are not allowed to grow a beard unless approved for medical or religious accommodation. Even then, they must maintain their beards in a neat, clean, and professional image not to exceed a quarter inch in length. So during my whole time in the military, that was the guys who were on profile. Yep. Right, we got the bumps. Bumps bad. I mean, I've seen some guys. It's like, oh my god, that's that looks horrible. Right. Um, but then I also saw guys use that profile and abuse it, and I'm like, wow, that's a really full beard you got. <laughs> yeah, I'm on profile. And I was like, oh god, you know, to fight that interpretation is just just crazy. Is that is that going to be a morale thing? What what? I don't know. It's it's just we should change our rules of hygiene and be clean shaven because in a combat environment in in the environment and when I say that I'm talking about like a a hot jungle type environment right you, it's a hygiene you're carrying facial hair that can re, you know hide and and have all kinds of bacteria and stuff in it eventually. Yeah. If it's yeah. not kept clean and neatly shaved, I I don't get it, man. There was nothing worse than cold shaving out in the field. Oh god, that was terrible. And then put putting camel back on the face, and I was like, ugh. <laughs> um, so, but this is Space Force, so I guess you know not a lot of hygiene issues when they're on the console, I suppose. Well, wouldn't you think that it's just a matter of time before the other services said, "Hey, why are they growing beards? Why can't we?" Maybe, and that's what that's worth investigating because I've got a couple other notes here uh, that illustrate how far we've come with uniforms and personal appearance in the military. Uh, in January 2021, as an outcome of the 101st Air Force Uniform Board, that's when the Air Force allowed women Women will be able to wear their hair up in two braids or a single ponytail with bulk not exceeding the width of the head and length not exceeding below a horizontal line running between the top of each sleeve inseam at the underarm through the shoulder blades. Oh, my God. <laughs> you ever see guys running around with a ruler? <laughs> oh man. In addition, women's bangs may now touch their eyebrows but not cover their eyes. So um that was in January 2021. 
So the Air Force allowed ponytails. I remember when the first time I saw it, I was like, hey, are you going to go put that up? And she's like, no, it changed. It's, we can wear them down now. And it's like, whoa. It's, it was weird. It was weird to see somebody in, in uniform wearing a bouncy ponytail. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm a little shocked and awe in here right now. Well, in addition to that, back in 2015, the Army relaxed restrictions on tattoos. Remember all the tattoo requirements back then? You couldn't have them on your arms. And if you did, you had to wear sleeves down constantly. Yeah, you had to be covered up, right? Well, the Army relaxed in 2015. The Army relaxed restrictions on tattoos when the service updated Army Regulation 670-1 to remove limits on the number of tattoos soldiers could have on legs and arms. The Army Training and Doctrine Command enlisted chief at the time said, the limits on tattoos impacted the Army's ability to recruit top talent. That was seven years ago no. that they were talking about that. And I'm sure right? that's worse. In just, in just June of this year, um, the Army allowed soldiers to have one visible tattoo on each hand, including the palm. Wow. And unlimited tattoos between the fingers as long as they are not visible when their hands are closed. <laughs> Troops are also authorized to have one ring tattoo on each hand. In addition to the changes for hands, soldiers now may have a single tattoo on the back of the neck that does not exceed two inches in all directions, as well as one tattoo behind each ear. <laughs> so long as they don't exceed one inch in size or reach forward of the earlobe. So we have to believe that this is a recruitment tool because of how many tattoos that our young people are carrying today. Now, to be fair, <laughs> there is one side of the argument that says, um, you know, having a tattoo doesn't determine how good a soldier is. I, I, I'm on board with that. You know, I agree. You can, you can be heroic and be sleeved up and that's, you know, that doesn't take I, away from I agree. But on, on the other hand, the way we were raised in the military, right? You know, the discipline, the adherence to rules, that you know, all that kind of sense stuff. of professionalism. And well, what is right? Well, what does basic do? Basic wipes you of your individuality and makes you part of a group. That's correct. And now they're saying, okay, bring all your individualities in because we're having a hard time recruiting. Yeah, <laughs> you know? that's got to be it. And the fact that so many young people today have tattoos and want more. Well, they do. And I, I thought that that trend would fade. And I I don't think it's really faded for the males. No. Uh, but it's definitely increased for the females. Absolutely. I would agree 100%. I, I've never seen more females in my life with tattoos than today's day and age. So, yeah. uh, you know, if they... Uh, I, I guess I don't have a problem with it. It's just the old school in me has a problem with it. But, uh, you know, you got to adapt, I suppose. I guess, as my son says, you can't pick on the young people just because they're young. Well, uh, <laughs> he's right, and I hate that he's right. Yeah. <laughs> I have my thoughts on it. But. Yeah, we do, too. But we're old heads, and that's why we retired. Roger that, sir. Ha, 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 ha.
On behalf of Master Parat, I'd like to thank you for listening today. I hope you enjoyed the show, and if you did, please leave a like and share the podcast with someone else. Let us know how we did in the comments, and as always, make sure to download the next episode for more service headline news. Eric, we'll see you next week. Thanks, Marty. Look forward to it.